Welcome back to Arts About. The show about art, but it's a work of art in itself. Hello, Mark. Hello, Sally. Arts About is brought to you by the generosity of the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery, and you're here in the Art of Piece studios with the obtuse and always surprising Mark Stewart and me, Sally Bailey, uh, as we meet a couple of painters this week. John's away, as you can probably tell, and uh, so it's just you and I, Mark, today. Mm. What are you going to be talking about this week? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Milky Way, um, which I wanted to talk about last week, and the uh, Yama Horsemen that I spoke about a few years ago. I want to speak about them again. The Yama Horsemen? Yes, they're from the steppes, and they were big dope dealers, and they wanted to fall. Oh, uh, in Russia? In the Russian steppes. Yes. Oh, okay. um, They're one of the four tribes of uh, founding tribes of modern Europe. And they were dope dealers, so we'll talk about Wow. <laughs> is, this, is this in order to bring credibility to dope dealers, or is this <laughs> no, just an obtuse no, and just, interesting just fact? just in relation to the war against drugs and how yep. absurd it is because it's been going on for so long. Yeah, okay. And a little bit about the uh, critical mass. It's a very good article by a woman called Lauren Euler about mm-hmm. um, polit- pol- p- politics and art. Okay. And how, uh, what is her I- name? Lauren o- Euler. I've French? Uh, no, I think she's Australian. She's in oh. the review. But oh, okay. Is this um, your friend Christopher Allen's writing about her? No, no. She, she's, it's her article. Oh, okay. Talking about how, you know, how I, I don't think that uh, politics and art mix. Okay. So um, oh, that's very interesting because I had a little conversation about that over the week. I'll tell you about it later. Good. Okay. Um, Terrible news this week. The legendary La Mama Theatre was gutted by fire, which has had the uh, theatre community in in a terrible state this week. La Mama is the place that many of us began our journey or have used to develop ideas or be inspired by other people doing it. Since 1967, the theatre has been a crucible in which alternative and experimental theatre has been able to flourish. Founded by Betty Burstall and run by long-time artistic director Liz Jones, La Mama is the place that many careers have begun and many larger productions have had their birthplace. It's widely acknowledged to be one of the most significant contributors to the Australian cultural landscape. And thankfully, the majority of their archives, which documented its 50 years of independent theatre, were recently donated to Melbourne University as part of the big celebrations that they had. And um, so thankfully, they remain safe. Uh, the building in Faraday Street's in ruins, but with a huge and very grateful theatre community um, mourning it, it will, it's not unexpected that we'll see it rebuilt in, in the not-too-distant future, I hope. Sadly, though, the friend of the show and artistic director of Dreamhouse Theatre um, Company, Carol Pachulo, had just begun a run of Bully Virus, a, a production in there, two days before it ignited. And amazingly, the show went on ahead without props, lights or costumes at the Kathleen Syme Community Centre and uh, has run all this week. So. So uh, I hope some of you out there have managed to see it. As I said, we're going to be talking with two local painters today. The first is Debbie McKenzie with an exhibition called Nostalgic Escapades at the Malvern campus of Manyang Gallery. And the other is Jacqueline Stevens, whose exhibition is on at Bright Space in St Kilda for another week. So before we get Debbie McKenzie in here, here's a taste of the wonderful 80s. It's Martha and the Muffins and Echo Beach. As I mentioned earlier, we're talking to painters today and today on Arts About we have local artist Debbie McKenzie whose latest body of work is called Nostalgic Escapes and is being exhibited at Manyang Gallery's Malvern branch until the end of the month. Her tranquil meditative images of green rolling pastures punctuated by cypress trees and capped by enormous skies are views that most of us are very familiar with living down on the Mornington Peninsula. 
Once a successful graphic designer in the advertising industry, it appears Debbie has found a quiet and more soulful pastime contemplating the beautiful places around her with the solitude of a painter. Good morning, Debbie, and thanks very much for joining us on Arts About this morning. Thank you for having me, Sally. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, I'm fascinated by the turn to the light that you have made, eschewing the pace and economy of life in the fast lane in the advertising industry to uh, a much more zen contemplation of the nature. Yes. <laughs> How yes. did that come about? Well, I think uh, it was more need than anything else. Um, we uh, moved from the city down here uh, 10 years ago and um, it, I actually was born on the peninsula so it was lovely to come back home and uh, it uh, it does bring out more creativity I feel well for me it certainly does and um, I had young children at that stage and uh, I was probably looking to be doing something more creative mm -hmm. and um, I've always been painting and drawing and um, it was a good opportunity to continue down that path and in a, a great more permanent thing, sense. Yes, a great thing yes. to do when you're tied to the home with young children, yes, I imagine, indeed, as well. Indeed. Mm. Yes. Um, you've been described as a, by some as a romanticist, eschewing the digital, embracing the natural world in a rejection of the madness of modern world. Do you agree with that? Completely. Yeah. Completely agree with that. I think um, today is so fast-paced and... Um, you know, so instant and um, people can contact you constantly on mobile or email and um, they say you paint what you need and I, and I think to a, you know, large degree I have done that and um, I like to escape that. I, I, I like to feel like I'm in my own space and away from all the technology and the demands of, you know, modern life. Have you exhibited with Manyang down here before? Yes, yes, yes a few times. Yes. Okay, and is this yeah. the first time you've gone to their Malvern? No, no, I had a show there last year and um, and that was terrific. I really enjoy showing in that space. And, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you, said, you also said in your bio that you've been tutored by the renowned artist Dr Tony Hanning. Yes. Who's he? He's actually, he's, he's a glass artist. He is. That, I thought so. And yes. then I thought, oh, maybe it's not the same person. Yes, mm. yes. And in fact, he is actually my uncle. So, ah. Yeah, so he was the pioneer of um, glass blowing and etching with Nick Mount in this country. And um, he has had a very big influence on me. Mm -hmm. And um, especially as, you know, children, we'd spend a lot of time in his studio and, um, yeah. No doubt he was probably a great encourager of you to actually start doing it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, very much, very much. Um, and I often, you know, we, we chat fairly regularly and we, we've spent a bit of time painting together and, um, and he's just... Um, He's really terrific to bounce things off, mm -hmm. and um, he um, he's in incredibly knowledgeable. So um, I'm very fortunate to have him as not only an influence but um, an ongoing resource. Uh, subject matter. Now I mentioned that a lot of them in the in this exhibition are rolling hills and these beautiful cypress mm. trees uh, uh, and enormous skies. What, what's what draws you to this imagery? It, it is certainly something that has um, impacted me since I was a young child so um, obviously growing up on the peninsula um, that has had a very big influence and um, you know 
uh, all through from Mount Eliza, I suppose, down to Flinders is rolling green hills. And I've had um, lots of childhood friends where we'd go horse riding and, and the views are vast. And, mm. um, and the skies are big. It's the skies big. Um, additionally, we have a family holiday home at the end of the Great Ocean Road. And um, which is a very fancy term for an old fibro beach shack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the so, best where is kind. Pe- at Pe- Pe- Peterborough's um, right at the end of the Great Ocean Road before it goes inland to Warnable. Okay. Isn't Peterborough where the, um, the the apostles are? Yes. So that's well, that's probably closer to Port Campbell. Yeah. Um, and as uh, children, we'd we'd drive through Geelong, Colac, Cobden, and come through the back way into Peterborough. And there's lots of dairy country through there mm-hmm. and um, really big skies and lots of cypress and, you know, it, it's it's huge. Mm. And um, for me, that lovely vastness and large sky kind of puts you back into a place of where you should be is we're really only quite small in this very yes, big we world. Are. And, um, and it grounds you. And I like to, you know explain that through my work mm. it, it's almost religious in fact the your the, the sense of distance distance and quiet and um it's like there's no there's very no human figures it's very very quiet mm. and and um massive in a way it's quite yes. they're quite beautiful thank you painting. they're sort of meditations aren't yes. they yes. are you married yes i am okay <laughs> <laughs> oh mark what do you like so painting has it really changed your the way you are the way you live or do, have you always painted I've 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 was more of an illustrator than a painter mm-hmm. and uh it's yes to go back to your question it absolutely has um I've always felt it uh, and I need to do it it's, mm-hmm. it's actually a need and uh it's just fortunate that you know over the last 10 years I've been able to do this full time mm. and um it's almost a euphoric experience to be able to paint. and um, You'd say that, wouldn't you, Mark? It depends on the day, Al. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly some days where it's just not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure some days it just doesn't work. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, so Nostalgic Escapes, what, what does it comprise of? The work? The exhibition. Yeah. Sorry, yes. I, what, sorry, why is it called Nostalgic because I suppose nostalgia in that, you know, here I am back in my, you know, childhood um, Brain. place um, geographically. Mm. And uh, I think to be able to come home and, and paint in a place that you love to escape modern technology, it, it just all sort of comes together. Yes, it's interesting because the etymology of nostal- nostalgia is, is home, missing your home. Yes, Yes. Yeah, so it's uh, it's quite, but there's no homes in the paintings. No. Well, occasion, just, occasionally there okay. is, and in fact, in in one of the pieces there is a home. Right. Um, but it, it it often depends because I feel like that can introducing a home can sometimes put a little bit of demand in there. <laughs> yes. But you know, there are when it's sort of you know a country sort of house or uh, you see, I think like a that, place is a home. Yeah. And I, I think that in a way that's probably, mm. you know, I look at those images and I feel like, oh, that's the place. This is part of where I yes. live. No, it's very know? true. Yeah. And mm. it's also very much part of the Australian uh, iconography, which is empty space. Mm. You know, this idea of empty space is very large in Australia. It's not yes. something which exists in many, or America a little bit perhaps, but not so much in other countries where you have this 
these massive skies and this this Absolutely. very little very mm. little land it does give you that sense of of just being able to breathe it does very which much. i guess is the idea of behind your paintings is to give and people a chance to breathe yes mm. and they're big aren't they they are so they they uh, range in size from sort of 60 by 60 up to um Almost two metres by two metres. Yes. yes. And how many paintings maybe are in at Mulvins? I haven't been there, so I don't actually know if it's a big gallery or... Yes. It, well, it, 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 it's a medium-sized gallery. It's a medium-sized. space. So there'll be around 15 to 17 pieces in the show, mm-hmm. um, all of varying sizes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, look... And when uh, is the opening? So It's May 31st. Thursday, May 31st, from 6 till 8, and um, it will continue from there for the following two weeks. Right, and if people want to find the gallery, it's near the... It's in Claremont Street. Just off uh, Glen, Glen, uh, Glen, Ferry, Glen Road. Ferry Road. So just in behind Malvern Station. Yeah, when mm. you come off uh, Dandenong Road. There. That's right. Yes. yes. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very much for talking to us about it today. I'm going to put thank the you. links on the Facebook page for the exhibition uh, and uh, so people can see some of the works that we're talking about. Really lovely of you to come on to the thank program today. Thank you so today. much thank for having Thanks, Debbie McKenzie. With a fine art major of painting from the Victorian College of the Arts in 1996, our next guest, Jacqueline Stevens, paintings explore the small life forces and colour energies inherent in all things microscopic, subatomic and aquatic. Art Edit magazine called her one to watch a couple of years ago and Jacqueline has an exhibition on at Brightspace at the moment and her vivid paintings look like enlargements of the things that you witness down the lens of a microscope. Infinitely tiny, exquisite compositions that scale keeps invisible from us most of the time. She's on the line with us this morning to talk a little bit more about it. Good morning, Jacqueline. Hello. Welcome to Arts About. Thank you. Uh, Jacqueline, um, are you interested in the infinitesimal? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, interested in, in the things that you know science has shown us exist and these wonderful things about creation, um, but we can't actually see them. We can't actually resolve to have a religious experience with them in mm-hmm. a way. And I don't mean religious as in God. I mean as in sort of something that takes us out of ourselves and into another world. Um, and so I'm interested in those things and I examine those things in my painting and while I'm painting. Are you aware, are you aware that you're being really, really small or is it, I mean, I, I look at some of them, some of the images and, and they actually could be galactical as well. I mean, you, you could go right out to the other scale as uh, well as, as sort of minute. It's. Definitely. Look, it, it goes from that thing of being the actual building blocks of life to then, hey, you see it in a rock pool, look around, you see it in a cliff face and then you go further, um, and, and you know, you see those images of the earth from NASA. And then further again to, you know, um, the NASA images of, uh, you know, uh, nebulas and things like that. And so, yeah, it's these universal connections with all things that are alive and that um, science has now brought us these amazing images. But where do we find the, the spiritual and our place in that? Yes. And how do we reflect on that and what joy do we get out of it? You know, rather than it just being a scientific image, what actual joy and uplifting effect can we get from that? Um, is what I try to explore and, and talk about and, and express. And colour seems to be a big part of it, the power oh, colour. of colour. Colour, colour, the power of colour, the energy of colour, the love of colour. Um, you know, as a painter, you can never escape that. But, you know, you see it, you know, again, I go back to the beach because I spend a lot of time walking on the beach and you might see a clump of, you know, what looks like brown seaweed and when you get up close there's all these pinks and oranges and you know touches of green and and beautiful things in that 
Yes, um, absolutely. In yeah. fact, I remember lying uh, uh, on the um, the pier down at Blair Gowrie, which has turned into where they have the, the boat marina there, and it has turned into the most extraordinary marine park, actually. And just lying there one day, looking over the side into the, into the depths of the water and realising exactly that. There were these brightly coloured shrimps and tiny weeny little things that, you know, from, from probably a couple of feet away you, you don't see. Yes, exactly. And and to savour those sorts of moments, um, you know, and take them back with you and hold them with you is sort of what the paintings kind of... I try to make the paintings do for people so they can actually go, oh, this reminds me of... And then, you know, that feeling that they had when they saw that and that, you know, the the world is... You know, I'm basically I'm in love with the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, I want to... Um, let people rejoice in that excitement of what they've seen and their love of the universe. Um, I'm just sort of the conduit for that. Hopefully, I mean, I'm, you know, it sounds like I'm I'm talking about really big things, but um, that that's what you aim to do um, is is to try and produce that joy and wonderment in in others. Yes, which clearly you have. Um... You know, I read in your bio that you had a brush with the wonders of modern science some time ago. Uh, and is that, in a way, what has led you down this path to kind of re- oh, look at the universe like this? Yes, on several levels, on several levels. Um, yeah, I just came out of art school, just finished at VCA, thinking, you know, I'm on the plane to New York next week. And then all of a sudden I lost my eyesight. <gasps> and um, it took, uh, you know, a good eight months of doctors taking lots of x-rays of my innards and cellular on every level. And you were blind at this time through this? Uh, Yeah, I couldn't. Well, I've I've had um, severe double vision. Right. And I couldn't, and I felt like I'd been, you know, a terrible head pain, and they just couldn't work out what was wrong with me. Um, And several million MRIs later, um, one bright young doctor said, I can see a shading in here. There's something growing there, and there was. Mm. And, um, yeah, and still to this day, it was a tumour that was still of unknown origin. They still don't know what sort of cells they were. And so that was kind of fascinating to me. I just thought, wow, here we are, 20th century, and we've got all this technology and science is, you know, still being black and white. <laughs> it's either that or it's that. And they still don't know. It's still a mystery. Um, and that was that was fantastic, you know, Epiphany, like wow, this is amazing. Um, but then also, I was confined for twelve months or more in healing, so I had to sort of work small. Yeah. And I started looking at microscopic things. I started blowing up images of newspaper Bendy dot screens and things, and they'd become these like atomic fields of cells and atoms and things. And it just triggered this whole body of work that just keeps going and going and getting bigger and bigger. Oh. You know. So, um, so you have an exhibition on at um, Bright Space. Uh, yeah. I think it's opened already, and it runs through till the end of end of the month. Uh, what yeah, is it called? It. It's um, it's just it's well, it's actually just called contemplating the the atomic, the subatomic. Actually, gosh, I, I it is that tape. Well, I've got it in front of me because I wasn't sure if that was the title. Contemplating the microscopic, subatomic, and aquatic. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> this is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> it is a bit. <laughs> we sort of didn't know because it was so, you know, so universal. We kind of didn't know how to narrow it. But, you know, there you go. It's the contemplating the microscopic, subatomic and aquatic. Um, you know, something for everyone in there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is not the first time you've exhibited it at Bright Space, is it? I've been in group shows at Bright Space. Mm-hmm. Uh, my studio is actually down the road from Bright Space. 
um, which has always meant that I've sort of withheld from exhibiting there only because it felt like I was just exhibiting, you Cross know, the down road. The <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a beautiful space. It's so gorgeous and it can, um, you know, it can, with, it can stand up to holding my big paintings as well as my little ones, you know. It's, um, so the it's paintings gorgeous. that we're looking at in, uh, on the website, are they big at Brightspace? Um, some of them are big. Some of them are close to two metres long um, and high. The um, the square ones are all the same size, seventy six centimetres by seventy six centimetres. But they're you know they they range in size. I've done paintings that are you know three point six metres by two metres in these sort of you know. <laughs> cellular field mm-hmm. um, and they're you know they're kind of they're, they're a joy to do you only do them when you're commissioned though because <laughs> they stay in your so studio mm-hmm. um, uh, but you know you really feel like you're totally immersed in those sorts of you know cellular worlds and atomic worlds then um, I haven't got one of those in bright space but the biggest one is the Aquavitae field, which is 1.5 by 1.98 mm. centimetres. So that's about that's two metres long. That's still pretty big, yes. 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 Now, are you a local of the Mornington Peninsula? I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula. Did you? I grew up at Flinders. Ah, we've just been talking to another artist who's painted quite a lot of Flinders, actually, um, uh, Debbie McKenzie, just earlier on in the show. Uh, do you still live down here? No, I'd love to, but I don't. I live in town because work commissions for... In town, yeah. Well, it looks like an incredible exhibition. I'm really looking forward to getting along to see it. Carly, I, I saw Carly over the weekend, uh, this last weekend, and she was talking voluminously about you and about those works. So um, I, I was very keen to get you on. So thank you very much for talking to us today. So contemplating the microscopic, subatomic and aquatic, uh, Jacqueline Stevens is on at... Uh, Brightspace running until the end of May and of course I'll put a link on our Facebook page and uh, so that you can see some of the work and also maybe get down there before it closes. Yeah, I'm actually doing an artist talk on next Sunday from one o'clock. Ah, terrific. All right, I'll I'll make a note of that too on the Facebook page. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Jacqueline Stevens. Uh, uh, Congratulations on your show. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. See you later. Bye. Bye. The beautiful Jimmy Cliff. I don't know whether you were into that when... Uh, did you ever... Do you remember that film, The Harder They Come, Mark? Uh, no, I don't. Mm. Sadly, no, I missed out on that. Must have been somewhere else. Yeah, perhaps yeah. you were. Anyway, that was him, gorgeous. Uh, now, you have got several things you want to talk to us about today. Well, yes, I'm going to talk about the Milky Way because um, <clears throat> we're right in the, in the midst of it. Yes. And we don't know so much about it. So, as it is, as we know, it's our home galaxy... We know it's rough dimensions, somewhere between 100,000 and 180,000 light years across. And they know it contains 100 billion stars, or perhaps 200 billion, or maybe even twice that again. Right. So, so actually, we really have don't no know idea. Much at all. <laughs> so, for, that, for part of the galaxy, though, things are about to become much clearer because on April the 25th, the European Space Agency's Gaia satellite released one of the biggest chunks of data in the history of astronomy. About 1.3 billion stars, perhaps about 1% of the Milky Way's total, have had their position, brightness and motion measured accurately for the first time. Mm. Okay, so 
that's the most important point. They've been measured and positioned accurately for the first time. Is this a, is this a 3D model that they've created from well, those? Well, it, it, the result is a stellar atlas of unprecedented size and accuracy. Okay, oh. so it's like an atlas, as well as great beauty. <clears throat> Um, and unlike an ordinary map, which is fixed and unchanging, Gaia's map moves. Okay, so whether it's in 3D, they don't really say. The satellite has taken dozens of pictures of every section of sky, which means the stars can be tracked as they float, okay, through space. Yeah. A video exaggerating to make the motions clear shows the thousands of stars drifting across the heavens as they orbit around the center of the galaxy. Those movements will provide valuable clues about the forces that have shaped the structure of the galaxy, mm. allowing astronomers to reconstruct its history. Okay, So thanks to a spectrometer aboard the satellite, many of Gaia's stars have their chemical compositions examined, which in turn will, will reveal their age. The sheer number of observations should help almost every corner of astronomy, from the Milky Way's companion dwarf galaxies, rich repositories of dark matter, which is a mysterious substance that makes up about a quarter of all the stuff in the universe. Mm. So dark matter and dark energy. I don't know what either is. But it's they very say hard. It I'm kind of fascinated by that, but I've been trying for ages. I can't get my head around it. Well, no, it. nobody can. They understand. say it exists, but they don't know what it is. Well, so I'm not the only one. No. Not. <laughs> so then they go, um, white dwarfs, for instance, are the shrunken, cooling, and super-dense remains of sun-sized stars that have run out of hydrogen to fuse. Okay, which is what's going to happen to our sun in about five million billion years. Until now, astronomers had had reliable information for only a dozen or so. Gaia's new data will boost that to twenty six thousand. Similarly, enormous halls of data are expected for everything from exoplanets to Kuiper belt objects, which are dark and distant piles of rubble left over from formation of the solar system and which circle the sun beyond the orbit of Neptune. The data even could help resolve fundamental disputes. Dark energy is mm. a mysterious force that seems to be accelerating the rate at which the universe is expanding. Because apparently the universe is expanding, yes. but if it stops expanding, it will implode, and that's the end of us. Oh, we don't apparently. want that. No, we don't want that. So the speed of that expansion can be determined in two ways. One uses cosmic microwave background radiation, which is mm. what you used to see on your black and white television yes. when it turns it on. yes. Um, one uses the, yeah, the cosmic background radiation, the faint afterglow of the Big Bang. The other relies on measuring the speed at which distant objects recede. The two give answers that differ by a few percentage points. So that's where the problem begins. By improving the accuracy with, it, with, with which distances are known, Gaia may remove that discrepancy, or even more intriguingly, confirm it is real. Mm. Uh, this is a French... Uh, European. 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 <clears throat> So the present data dump is only the satellite second. The first, a small, uh, much smaller release, took place in 2016. At least two more are planned over the next few years. Indeed, there is so much data that rather than analyse it themselves, normal practice for any scientific project, Gaia's controllers have made it all immediately available for anyone to use, which is just magnificent. So, so, so we can find this ourselves, or well, we can go online, you, perhaps? Well, uh, I guess so. They, they haven't given that, uh, but I guess if you just Google Gaia, you know, yeah. get it. And Gaia the, is G-A-I-A or something, G-A-I-A, yep. Yeah. And the first release, data release, has been generating an average of one scientific paper a day for the past two years. Wow. 
So it's a big thing. People are talking about it. Oh, yeah. Well, the scientific yeah. paper a day means that they're getting a lot of information out of it. So mm. they're going to find out more and we'll, we'll hear about it soon, I guess. That's exciting. Mm. That is exciting. I love all that space stuff. Yes. So moving on or back yes. to the Yama. Oh that, yes, yes, the, and the because um, they found the the use of cannabis. In so these are the fo- these are the uh, horsemen or ho- the the, the yeah, horsemen the and women from the steppes. From the steppes, which are up very far north, are they in uh, Russia? Well, it's it's um, well, probably not. Yeah, I've never been to Russia, so I don't know exactly where the steppes are. But they're okay. obviously. Uh, I think it's it's part of um, the Russian continent. Yeah, the Russian yes. the, the, of um, Siberia. But they, oh, anyway. okay, yes. Anyway, I'm sure someone will correct us on that. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe a fan from Hopper's Crossing. Um, they found the use of cannabis in Japan, China, and Eastern Europe from 11,500 BC. But consummation exploded in around, in around 7,000 BC with the transcontinental commerce coming from the Yama, who were the, one of the four founding tribes of modern Europe and the first big dealers of cannabis between 5,500 BC and 4,300 BC. Not only did they diffuse their Indo-European language and share their genes with many a willing farmer's daughter who could resist a dashing rider with a bag of dope. This is um, this was from a study by the University of Berlin in an article from the magazine Vegetation's History and Archaeobotany. Oh, really? Mm, archaeobotany. Archaeobot. Well, Lovely. it's an obvious yeah. subject, I guess, when you think about it. Yes. So around 9000 BC, the Yama domesticated the horse, mastered equitation, and acquired a new and fast nobility. And cannabis had a high value, joke, and multiple uses in the kitchen for medicine, the fabrication of rope and rugs, and as a psychotrope. So, so presumably that's where it b- began, uh, its botanical life. I mean, that's where, well, is that they, where dope ca- uh, marijuana well, no, comes from? I, I don't know where, the, you know, as you know, it's a weed, and they apparently they've found um, uh, these uh, very tall people in western um, China who were over three meters tall, and they had they found a bag of, um, a Hessian bag with uh, marijuana inside, so it's been you've it's been, pro- around, for been around for a long so it's time. a weed, which and a weed is something that's an opportunist, isn't it? Apparently, it, uh, yes, it's not yeah. cultivated. It, it, it's it, a good it, weed, and there's bad weeds. Right, you know? and yes. they, this is obviously a, a good weed, I guess, for most people. And as, as you can see, it's becoming enormously popular these days with the hemp, hemp seeds and the, you know, it's yes, just, it's astounding the the, the possibilities of the medicinal uses yeah. as well as its physical uses. Yeah, yeah. That's it makes right. a good butter too, doesn't it? Does it? Mm. Mm, interesting. So um, that's it for me. Ah, okay then. Well. Um, I, went, I wanted to tell you, I went along the other day to a dinner at the... I was very lucky to be invited along to the McClelland um, Gallery's special philanthropist's dinner, their gala dinner for the year, where a lot of the Should people... Should we mention the price of the plate? No, I don't no. think that that's okay. necessary. But it was a big fundraising dinner, and everybody that went along there was really contributing to the, to the ongoing um, uh, sustenance, I suppose, of the McClelland Sculpture Park and Gallery. And uh, it was a terrific night. And uh, Gerald Vaughan, who was, of course, the director at the NGA and previously at the NGV, uh, I think he's coming back to Melbourne for something or other, uh, spoke at the dinner, and it was mm. it was interesting. But one of the things that he talked about, of course, because he's he was addressing a room full of philanthropists and very generous sponsors of the gallery and, mm. and probably of many more as well, <laughs> was this notion that... Um, uh, it's a. It really needs people. Things need to change. People actually. It's 
counting on the the goodwill of sponsors is really not enough for institutions to manage on. And you know, I think he said uh, McClelland are only they only get twelve percent of their budget from the federal government. The rest of it is it relies on uh, sponsorship and, mm. uh, and and philanthropy. <clears throat> and it's really it's really pretty unsustainable for an enormous number of galleries and and. Uh, art receptacles around the country it's just it's not enough and what really needs to change is is the view that our political structures have upon you know well, the, the benefactors or being benefactors of art and uh and the, the great benefit that these institutions play mm. to the communities well look it, it's an interesting um phenomenon because you know, when when i left the country 30 years years ago there mm. were very few um regional galleries and they were you never heard of them they were they were sort of run very sort of low budget affairs but it seems after experiencing ballarat for example it's such a it's a very vibrant um mm-hmm. gallery these days and mcclellan seems to be going through a bit of a dip i guess at the moment and that it'll, it'll hope it'll come back up but uh, you know once again it's a um you know the, the problem with mcclelland has been that it's you know the, the cafe is getting larger and the exhibition space seems to be getting smaller and they their exhibitions just haven't been of the quality which one would expect you know there's a, well yes i mean i think perhaps you haven't maybe, liked a couple recently well, but but there was the they have as we saw very recently an extraordinary collection there uh, of paintings as well as sculptures. There have been some good shows, but they're, they're, I, I guess the bigger problem is that you know, where is the sponsorship going to come from? And do we That's expect right. the government? Do we expect them, the government, to to give money towards the arts? My feeling has always been that um, the arts should exist by itself. I'm not. Uh, I've never believed in. You know, I think that always as an artist, you have to you know, suffer the consequences of your decision to be an artist. And a gallery, it's obviously not the same situation. But um, it's it's not very straightforward. I don't. You know, it, no, it isn't straightforward. But I, what I also think is that uh, an, an attitude prevails from the, the governmental lips, which uh, infiltrates down through education and and so many things that actually uh, attributes a value to the arts. Mm. And I think what's happened in our country these days is that the value that they are attributing to the arts is being lessened and lessened. And uh, and I think that that damages sponsorship and benefactors and, uh, and so on as well. I've always thought that Australia never had a really great interest in arts. I don't think it's uh, the most... I think it's much more interest in sport and... and um, well, that's, you know, you know, that, you know the, that's clear. The price clear. of the house then, then it has... A, you know, and the problem is most people... You go towards art when you're... When you're you, if you've suffered or if you're, you, you have, you know, it's something which you, any sort of, music is the same, mostly music is the same thing, especially as you get older. It's a, it, it's a, something to make you feel more uh, spiritual in a way. So it's the opposite to what most people are looking for in, in Australia, which is a comfortable house and, a, and a, that their football team wins. Yes, oh, I think that that's a, a terrible generalisation because yes, I it think. Is. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I do think that that's a stereotypical view of of, an, of Australian culture, and I don't think that that's true reflection. Because I think that there are that most people out there, in some way or another, engage with the arts, whether they realize whether they call it arts or whether they realize they are or not. I would think that just about everybody is, and there are certainly huge numbers of people who are interested in fine arts mm. uh, as well. And um, I, I think that the benefits of it. Uh, horribly underestimated by sort of financial models that are being purported by our government economists. Well, I mean, the big the big uh, difference was when um, Bilbao 
uh, opened in Spain yep. with the Frank Gehry Museum. Yep. They realized that uh, Bilbao was a um, decrepit uh, ex-port, uh, which was just yep. completely um, undeveloped. It was, it was Poverty was everywhere. They built this gallery, and suddenly there's cafes and restaurants and museums and tourists, and it built up the whole economy of the of the whole city. Well, exactly. I mean, so we have a much more... But then that was because of the gallery itself, not so much what was inside it. It was this extraordinary architecture, which is what you, you can say the Opera House or the uh, Harbour Bridge does bring people in. But uh, you know, art in itself is very. It, it, there's not many. You know, I mean, Mona is a, perhaps a good example. Of Mona that. is a great example of yeah. that. Absolutely, to the, the value of the economy. And in fact, quite recently, there was a there was a forensic. Um, uh, uh, analysis of the accountants uh, of the of the financial flow of a, an MTC production that was on at uh, you know I think it was last year I can't actually remember what the production was, but it was a it was a forensic look at where the money went and what mm. the money went and mm. there was a, approximately three million dollars uh, spent on the production itself that mm. the, the, the MTC put in and what they realized was this exponential flow of finances that went out of course through restaurants through tourism through hotels and so on and and ultimately the amount of money that this single production generated or created flow from was was in the forty thousand, you know, forty million dollars. Right. So, yeah, yes. um, well, it's like when we went to the Geelong. I, I have Gallery. got those figures wrong. They're not. They're not exactly right. I don't I'm care. just, yeah, I don't but care. but they were profound. But, yes, no, no. and I think if we look at the the value of arts, if if people begin to look at the on flow effect that happen, that occurs as a result, whether it's in health, whether it's in education or whatever, that art does generate an enormous economic mm. flow. Mm. Yep, I agree. Okay, good. Oh, we're not arguing. <laughs> 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 Terrific. <laughs> well, we're getting on, on towards the end of the show here. I, I had another piece of music to play. I was going to play the Neville Brothers Voodoo. Shall we, yeah, shall let's, we, let's, go, let's have a little bit of that, okay. and uh, then we'll come back to the news. Oh, the fabulous Neville Brothers. That was Voodoo. And, uh, and so now we've come almost to the end of the program, Mark. Hark. Hark. <laughs> it's time for the news. Oh, now we have a very special announcement, you know, Mark. We've got a fan. Oh, yes. Shirley in Hopper's Crossing has contacted the station just recently uh, and she wanted to know where um, what the music was at the beginning and the end of the show. Well, Shirley, that is a fabulous track that was brought to my attention by Donna, who used to be on the program uh, a few years ago. And it's from the Squirrel Nut Zippers and it's called Put a Lid on It and we love it too. So thanks for your message. That's great. This week, Jacqueline Stevens' exhibition's on at Brightspace. Uh, I think it actually, I think it actually might finish the end of this week. Anyway, very soon. Also, Debbie McKenzie, who we spoke to both of those painters today, her exhibition Nostalgic Escapades is on at Manyang Gallery in Malvern. The Spoken Word and Poetry Festival is still on until June the 3rd. Venues everywhere. Have a look for them at mswpf.com.au. Yeah, that's the Melbourne Spoken Word and Poetry Festival. I've put a link on our Facebook page to make it a little easier. So you don't have to get put your pens away. Just right. go to the Facebook page. Okay. If you go on Facebook. That's right. Also <laughs> tonight at Poets Corner, Reverse Butcher is performing as part of the Spoken Word Festival in McRae at Cafe BBC at 6pm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's on tonight. Mm. Siobhan Kelly's exhibition survey is still on at Antipodes uh, Gallery and Bookshop uh, and will be on until middle of July. 
And Andrew Hayes, Winkles Multimedia Show, What the Sea Never Told, on at the MPRG until July the 8th, worth seeing. Yes. Very good. There's also a selection of abstract works from the MPRG, from their collection, that that is from the um, the three years, I think, following uh, field, the field exhibition at the NGV. Yeah, the inaugural exhibition. <coughs> yes, so the MPG have got a few large-scale non-objective And they paintings. are quite beautiful. Are they? Yes, mm. I haven't seen those yeah, yet. I, I think that's on until the same time. Matthew Fagan is playing with Nicholas Young, uh, The Spirit of Spain at El Vito tonight, which is uh, Sunday at St John's in Flinders, and there's a link on our Facebook page for that as well. Another Dimension is still on at McClellan, exploring the dynamic relationship between form and content in contemporary art until July the 5th. Yes, and the Art Gallery of Ballarat's exhibition that we all loved so much, Eugene von Gerard's Artist Traveller, uh, curated by the fabulous Ruth. Uh, yes, uh, that closes today, so if you haven't seen it, you've missed it. That's mm. a bit of a shame because that is, it's a terrific exhibition. I'm sure it'll go somewhere else. I hope so, Yes. Uh, so the field revisited is at the NGV Fed Square building, level three. Along with the work, uh, the survey of Robert Hunter. Yes, and the Southern Peninsula players are rep- uh, presenting The Last Night of the Vicar of Dibley, directed by Keith Gledhill. Book tickets through their website at theatre.com. Yes, that's right. Mm. And the annual, the ninth annual Melbourne Cabaret Festival returns to Chapel of Chapel and shows are on sale now. So if you've just tuned in, you've missed Arts About... But um, we'll be back. Yeah, we will be back. Uh, let's see. We'll be back next week on Sunday, at the same time as always. Uh, if you've missed the show and you want to, um, uh, would like to catch up, it's on on Wednesdays at twelve broadcast. And uh, remember, everybody, we may not know everything about art. Oh, Mark, he's got nothing to say this week. Looking forward to you coming back, John. Yes, exactly. Cheerio for now.